0: Jordan is on best Harper's on middle middle. They play together, they believe Um, If there's Levert, it's cold Levert, back in Speed Oh, he's a one-man
1: wrecking crew Holiday. shot clock down to six Finds Warren go
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. Uh, I am back at it again with my good friend and, and colleague, Caitlin Cooper, as always for an, another edition of two questions to off. Uh, first of all, Caitlin, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. It feels like it's been a minute since we've talked. It feels like, like months have gone by and the week that has has surpassed since our last podcast summit.
0: Yeah, we literally, I think it was Maybe not even like eight days ago when we talked. It was somewhere around there. I think we talked like Wednesday, two weeks ago. And it feels like it has been uh an eternity since then, like you said. Obviously, the Pacers haven't played in four days, and I'm I'm kind of glad. Um, I'm very like, I mean, ever since once that athletic report came out, I just kind of uh not to sound like oh, woe was me, but like I was just kind of like, What am I supposed to do with this team? Like, I, I don't know what to think, I don't know what to. What to what lens I'm supposed to view them through, because, um, you know, we have a lot of stuff that we're going to dive into that, that even came out after that, that that muddies the water a little bit. But, yeah, um, I guess the first thing that, that we should do is for anybody who has not listened to do questions to uh, Caitlin, can you please explain to people what it is?
1: Yeah, so we named the podcast Two Questions Too Haw after former PA announcer Red Porter's classic call in the last two minutes of games when he would say two minutes too haw. So that's where we're at. And we each come up with two questions to ask the other person. We don't know them going in and we just kind of turn it into a brainstorming session. And and we actually kind of, Mark and I were talking about this before we hopped on, we kind of created this podcast to talk about more just like basketball and other stuff that we find interesting, good, bad, or otherwise. And kind of feels like with where the team's at, that this might be a little bit more narrative driven in some of the questions. So we apologize for that, but that's kind of where the state of the team is. So hang with us.
0: Yeah. And without further ado, I know you have the first question you want to kick us off.
1: Right. So I actually sent this out to Twitter and told people they could ask us stuff because just generally speaking, like you and I can come up with things, but I would rather talk about what people want to actually listen to. So this one comes from Zachary Barnett, and then there were several other people who asked similar questions, but he says, what is the biggest reason for optimis- optimism this season with an out-of-touch ownership and clear roster issues, I really haven't seen much of a, a bright spot. And it kind of goes into what you opened the podcast with too, because there were several other questions that are like, hey, I'm having trouble just like focusing on the nitty-gritty of this team when you know there's trade rumors swirling and and trying to focus on what lens there should be. So I'll let you take that in whatever direction you want to.
0: Uh yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um I don't know. I think the best way that I can answer it is Tom and I. Talked about this early in the year. I think it was when the team started off like around one and one and five or one and six. And we did a pod and um, I just asked him, like, you know, how are you feeling? Because this is I mean, this is the worst start that, that, that the team had had in forever. Um, and he was honest. He was like, you know, I think I'm excited because this is the year that answers happen. Like, it feels like this is the year where finally something has to break and something has to give um and again like just going off of what happened over the last week and a half it does seem like that is the the case i would hedge too because like we'll talk about it it seems like the front office and ownership have done some hedging as well to make it seem like that's not quite the case at least in in entirety but um i think the bright spot is that despite this kind of not feeling great right now in terms of watching it or analyzing it or being a fan I, i imagine like It's good to know that there at least should be change on the horizon, uh, presumably. Um, How much change, I guess, is what we can get into. But, uh, I mean, other than that, like, seeing O'Shea Brissett play more. Like, one of the – I I mean, what kept me watching games was seeing O'Shea Brissett play, which sounds really rudimentary, but um, I just watched for energy. Like, he was everywhere the last couple games. It's been great to see him uh, showing out, playing well. Um, obviously Isaiah Jackson hopefully playing more soon. It was reported that he would be, and Chris Duarte's been playing as well, still kind of having a rough stretch. But I guess that's – it's not a lot to point at, um, but I think those are kind of the bright spots to look at right now. I mean, where are you at with that?
1: Well, do I think we can touch on it from two sides. Um, since we haven't talked about what Herb Simon's comments were, mm-hmm. um, what was your general takeaway from that? I mean, I think just to yeah. open, like – i do agree with the the masses that the comment about like i like our little team that comes off as somewhat patronizing and also a little bit out of touch along with the idea that they're going to be able to attract a top tier free agent to sign with the pacers and like no disrespect to david west but the idea that you're going to sign you know and make a really splashy signing or insinuating that really isn't even completely fair to the front office. Cause I just firmly do not believe that's going to happen. Yeah. Those two comments aside, I feel like I came down on it a little bit more tepid than what the majority of Twitter seemed to think. I didn't think it seemed like he was ruling out the possibility that trades could happen. I mean, he even said, like, we're always going to look for opportunities. It depends on where we are at at the moment. If we're on an upswing, we might hold course. If we're still struggling, we'll be looking for trades. Like it feels like the team as a whole is kind of doing what you need to do in this situation which I still, I, I mean, I understand why fans might have whiplash because obviously the initial athletic report comes out and it indicates the words rebuild, retool. And then when you open the article and actually read it, it, it was very clear that this wasn't going to be a tanking situation, like what the Thunder have going on or what was, you know, a Sam Hinky project type thing. And that would just be completely out of character for the Pacers anyways. But to go from that to making like Herb Simon kind of making it seem like why well, I'm completely fine with the team, but at the same time, I think that's what they have to do. Like, I you're not just going to say, oh, yeah, like he's not going to give an interview and just be like, oh, yeah, here's the for sale sign out in the front yard. And, you know, the house is on fire, like to present the fact that, hey, we're not panicking. We're going to maintain leverage and you don't need to downplay the players that they have in the locker room. So while I didn't agree with everything that he said, I wasn't so much like, oh, this is a terrifying statement, because for one, like before that athletic article came out, isn't this what everybody already thought? Like there was rumors over the summer that, that Kevin Pritchard had considered a rebuild and that that Herb Simon had pushed back on that idea. So, I mean, that's just kind of been what the Pacers MO has been. I don't know what you thought of all of his quotes and and what came out of those interviews.
0: Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, there, there was a lot to parse through. I think that's the best way to put it, um, off rip, uh, with, with how much information came out. Like, um, Obviously, uh, I'm trying to remember his name right now. jeez, uh, the guy who wrote the article at the athletic was Sean Strania. Oh, Bob I, I, yeah, Bob I can't Travis, believe it yeah. I knew it was Bob Something I couldn't remember his last name. but I listened to him on on a couple podcasts and uh, and radio hits as well just to to get his full background like exactly like you're saying. like it's um I agree that um I don't think the comments were as bad as they got made out to be um but, I think part of what I really struggled with and that was frustrating just in in, in listening and, and and taking everything in was even if, you know, some of those comments were taken out of turn or, or not as big as they were. Like, that's still the national perception of the team now. And I mean, it largely that has been. It's not like anything really changed with it. But I think part of the issue is that when the like as much as I think there's a tendency to just be like, you know, a quote's just a quote. I'm not saying you're saying that, but I saw a lot of people were like, it's just a quote. It's not a big deal. I'm like, yeah, it's just a quote, but it's the quote that's defining Indiana right now. And I think that's problematic. Like it just felt very much to me. Like, and I mean, to be fair to Herb Simon, he's, I mean, he's old enough to be my great grandfather. Like he's, he's not a young guy. So I understand to a degree that maybe he doesn't have quite the same touch that he, he maybe did, in understanding things earlier uh in his in in his life but to me it, it definitely comes off like he doesn't quite have the, the same uh tuneness with with what's going on or maybe uh like i, I think it was in uh i, I want to say it was in set, on setting the pace when when Bob Kravitz went on he mentioned that um you know he uh that Herb Simon had not had as much control when uh, or as much, uh, he wasn't meddling as much. That's the wrong word. He didn't say meddling, but like, you know what I mean? Like in terms of like having his hands on things and and making decisions, uh, he had less of that on his plate when he wasn't retired from what he was doing. Um, when Donnie Walsh was, was in control of the organization and he's been more active and and interested in the team or not interested is the wrong way, but I'm sorry, I'm butchering this, but point being like he's been a little bit more active in things recently. Maybe that does play a part. And I think- I don't know. Maybe I'm taking too much of it away myself, but I do think uh, like I was I don't think that we needed to jump at it the way that we did with with looking at some of the quotes quotes. But it it also was a little bit just discouraging that it seems like this really backed up a, a lot of how the front office and ownership just haven't necessarily been on the same page. It seems like in some ways, like obviously it's been made out. Kevin Pritchard and Herb Simon have a great relationship, but also like. Herb very clearly is, is against a lot of the potential that could make this team move in a different direction. Like, like you mentioned, he did still say like, um, that, you know, that there's possibility for trades and, and whatnot, but I don't know. Am I making any sense with where, with where I'm going with this?
1: No, I makes not sense. And I understand why fans would be frustrated because it does seem counterintuitive for where a fan base that like, I'm sure we'll get into later seems very apathetic and, Um, defeat us with where the team is at right now, then come back out and be like, well, you know, we like where the team is at right now. But at the same point in time, I think that some of that might just be posturing. Like, I'm not going to say it is completely because he, I mean, he, and and a lot of it just came across as I want to make everyone for certain that I have a huge distaste for tanking and we are not going to do that here. Like, I mean, he even points out that like, Hey, we might lose some games. If we're trying to get minutes for rookies, but we're basically not going to come out and intentionally lose games. And I think you're probably getting at there like, you know, some of the late season tactics where you're just holding people out to be dropping stuff and, you know, other things. So, um, I'm still, I just, I wasn't left with the impression that, that they were ruling out the entire possibility of trading. Now, am I thinking that they might that they're, they're probably more and it's been somewhat the pattern for this front office anyways, that they might be looking more so for players that will help them now. And how much will that actually help them versus, you know, we're looking for packages where it might be like expiring money and future picks and, you know, something along those lines. I, I lean towards what he's saying here that they still want to be a competitive team. So again, I understand the fan frustration with mediocrity, but I don't, I don't think my main take was that, that they were opposed to making any changes with this roster. Aside from the fact that I do agree that his comment about, you know, I love this little team did come across out of touch and very patronizing, but um, just to look from the basketball side of it outside of that realm of comments, like if we are going to pretend that this roster is going to stay the same, I do think here in the month of December, and over the last several weeks, I have seen some progress. That the coaching staff has tried to tinker with things and and come to some realizations and I I will be interested to see how much of that was like Lloyd Pierce and them like trying to stay afloat while Rick Carlisle was out because I mean just like in that Pistons game the other night and the fourth quarter. They posted Sabonis eight times. They got got him eight post touches just in that fourth quarter. Like that's way more than he's averaged all year, if not twice more than what he's averaged all year. So I do think that they've done some tinkering that I appreciate, and not just in that regard, but with uh, like their their rim frequency has been like top four over the last eight games. They're getting to the free throw line more in part because of that. Um, some of their other shot distribution, I think they've simplified some of their defensive coverages, at least by my eye test. Um, They've tried to work around some of the blitzing, though I still think that's going to be a long continuing problem all season based on what we continue to see and how the hedges affected them so much in the fourth quarter, but against the Bucs. But one thing I would say about that is that the Bucs were pretty much hedging that entire game and they were handling it better at the beginning of the game than they did at the end. But basically like if i'm focusing on the nitty-gritty i don't really feel like you know you and i and what we do really have a choice like if this is the team that they're putting out there i'm going to continue to write about what i see is going wrong or what i see that they might be able to improve on because that's what i do and i do think that they've made some tiny steps now does this team necessarily have like a young core that like what you were saying earlier like last year even at the back end of the season when you could see like you know it's like the dog meme where the house is on fire and this is, this fine. is fine. Like yeah. you could still focus on Edmund Sumner and O'Shea Brissett and be like, hey, you know, they took a flyer on this guy out of the G League. Edmund Sumner's kind of figuring some stuff out. At least that's kind of fun. Um, if Isaiah Jackson isn't playing, they don't clear space for him, or they don't like if O'Shea's playing it back up for there's not really room for Isaiah Jackson to be doing that. And then, you know, Chris Duarte's kind of floating between the bench and the starting lineup and He's had some struggles, which I know we will get into later, hint, hint. But um, it it is a little bit like there's not something specific that you can look on and be like, oh, you know, that's the thing. But uh, yeah, I don't really blame people for feeling like it's a purgatorial state. You and I have been saying that for months. And, you know, hopefully they can continue just to keep tinkering with some of what they're doing. And hopefully also, like Karis Lavert has been somewhat up and down, but his playmaking has been. A little more evident, even though I still think there's spots like here, I'll just pull out a specific moment. I don't know why. Like in the Bucks game in the first half, there's one spot where Sabonis is setting a corner pin and screen for Miles, and Sabonis is waving at Karis like four times in a row, like give him the ball, give him the ball, give him the ball. And Karis goes to the opposite side and takes a tough baseline too. Like he made the shot, but not really the right play. So, you know, I think that there's still growth for that for his decision making. I think some of it's gotten a little bit better over the last couple of games, but could still uh, take some steps forward. And I don't know, that might be one of your questions too. And this is getting long and rambly, but I don't have a perfect answer for you, Zachary, but uh, I can understand where you're coming from. But I think that I don't think that the team as a whole from the front office and, and ownership standpoint is completely satisfied with the team is where it is. That's not what Reed I completely have. And I do think that if the team does stay as it is that at least I can point to a few specific things that the coaching staff has done that I think have been improvements over where they were during, you know, the one and five start and early on when some of the roles just didn't make a lot of sense to me. So.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, we're, we're pretty much in the same step with that. And I think my, my next question is a, uh, building off of that, um, I guess the, the the best way to simplify it. Uh, looking ahead, let's say six months from now, what are the Indiana Pacers to you in both an ideal and, and realistic way? Like, what would constitute a good process based on everything that's come out and and what they they're talking about? Because obviously, like like we we I mean we've hit on it well. Like, it's not it's not a rebuild at least based on everything that has been reported. So, to you, I mean, if you're looking at this in 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 May uh you know the finals are coming up or something or, or it's still in the middle of the playoffs and um you know you're trying to see where this team is at presumably probably not there but uh I mean what are you thinking seeing like what what would constitute is is this team being in a better place for you than where they are right now?
1: Well I mean if they stay exactly as they are you would hope that they've in some way, shape or form, like just from a tactical standpoint. Have continued to figure out this problem against the blitzing defenses and what I mentioned earlier like if we want to get more specific when they are playing the Bucks in the first half and this is why some of it's so baffling to me because there's moments where it's like yeah see how easy that was like you just pass the ball to the middle of the floor where Sabonis was and now he has his head on a swivel and he's passed it to Duarte in the left corner for a three and you made the shot like it shouldn't really necessarily be that hard but I understand why teams are doing it because the Pacers are shooting the three I mean, they're 29th in spot-up efficiency, which this is another thing we'll get to later. Like, they're not shooting the three well, so and their guards haven't been great at passing to the roll man all season. So if you can trap Karras or you can trap Brogdon and the people around them aren't going to shoot the ball that well, and then you're also, in some cases, some teams have been better at covering the slip from Sabonis or Turner better than others have, like, you're kind of locking up what they can do offensively, and especially in those late-game situations, if they start to tighten up, you know, then it becomes problematic. But I did think here in the second game that they won against the Wizards after, you know, the heat debacle that that was a lot more fluid in that one. And some of that's because of the Wizards defense, but also against the Bucs when the Bucs were small, they started shorting some of those pick and rolls. So like if the guard gets blitzed, they pass it to the wing, the roller continues to roll, and then you're getting it at a better angle so you can catch that guy going to the basket. And they did that with Sabonis and Miles. So that, and then I, I think it was the Wizards game where they were ram screening guys into screen. So then that second, the screener's defender would be slower getting up to trap the ball. Like I see them starting to make some headway there, but like in general, I think I tweeted it at the end of the Bucks game. Like if I was, if I was consulting with other teams on how to guard the Pacers, I would tell them you every time blitz their guards. And then if they get it to Sabonis send multiple defenders there, because he's been good. He's been better for certain, like against the pistons The pistons were constantly sending the trap from uh, the passer, which makes that a lot easier read and he was getting the ball out of it quick. But if you're, if the shooters aren't making shots, then it doesn't really matter. Like if you're funneling those shots out to the three point line, which is what those cover, both of those types of coverages are going to do, then you kind of have them where you want them. So that stuff and and then just improving their three point shooting like along the lines it seems like every year there's one type of coverage that gives the pacers problems and also zone like zone's going to give them problems if they're not going to be able to shoot teams out of it so that's something to watch in this evening's game i don't know when this will come out but when they play the heat again can they be better against the zone than they were the last time um I think that for me to feel like, oh, yeah, you know, it was a good idea. Like, if we're going to suggest that they kept the roster exactly where it was, they have to get in the playoffs. And I know people don't want to hear it, but they at the very least have to be a tough out in the playoffs. Otherwise, like this was not a successful season. I don't know where you are at with that, but I mean, that's what I would say. Then it's absolutely time that you have to make changes. Now, I personally, I'm of the standpoint that I will be surprised if we get clear to the end of the season and they haven't made at least one trade.
0: No, I agree. Yeah, I would be shocked if a trade doesn't happen before then, but um, it <laughs> remains to be seen for sure. Um,
1: Can I just yeah. add in one, like adding a question to your question? This won't yeah, be of one, course. my official ones, but I believe somebody asked from Twitter, like if they do, we won't like get into the specifics of the words rebuild and retool, I'll spare us of that. But like, and it's not even necessarily for a player, but if they were to make trades, what do you see this team, as needing, like what type of things would you be targeting? And it doesn't have to be a specific player, just like, you know, I think that was the general idea of the question. Like I'm not asking for a fake trade here.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this team, they need somebody who can, who can get stops at the point of attack, which sounds simple, but uh I mean, just in that Bucks game, like. Oh dear. Now I mean, Drew Holiday looked like, he was freaking Gary Payton, prime Gary Payton playing in that game, just posting relentlessly and, and getting buckets out of it. It was either he was too quick for Malcolm the guard or he was too strong for Chris Duarte. And that was – they just had no answers. I mean, they started doubling him later in the game. But, I mean, that was – I don't know. That whole game, was. I just would like to pretend that whole game didn't happen because that was not a fun watch. Um, But that was just – I mean, I think Tony East is who has – earlier in the season wrote a piece on this and had asked Rick Carlisle about it multiple times you know like who is your guy that you you go to 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 stop a bigger wing on the other team or just you know somebody capable at the point of attack and um you know Rick's answer was like you know we you know, we had troubles with that in Dallas like every team has troubles with that because you know you just can't stop Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James and this and that I'm like yeah you can't stop them but also I mean, you have to find a way to make sure that Drew Holiday is not shooting like, you know, like hitting scoring 30 points on like 60 or 65 percent true shooting like that just can't happen or you're not going to win games, especially when Giannis and Chris Middleton are playing. So um, I think, I mean, what's been abundantly clear just throughout this year and even in prior years, I mean, last year, because TJ wasn't here, like they need somebody who can be that guy who gets stops on the perimeter because they just don't have it right now.
1: Yeah. And. And I think part of the problem too is is it's like, you know, Torrey Craig to an extent was supposed to be that, but you're obviously not going to play him a ton of minutes a game. And now Mm -hmm. because O'Shea's shooting the ball a lot better, they're not identical defenders, but O'Shea's kind of edged Torrey back out of the rotation. And some of it's difficult to assess because like, I'm not going to say that. And I don't think it's fair for any of us. Like this could have been a bright spot. Like eventually TJ Warren will play basketball again, but I don't think it's fair for us to heap, you know, all of this on TJ to be the savior of the team, especially because we don't know how long it's going to take him to look like himself. Like that just doesn't seem, like I said, completely fair to him, but it's, it's like when you look at the packages, like all these all of these fan bases like to send me every day or two some yeah. new like millions of trades. And it's like, you know, and you listen to Herb Simon's comments and you take them into account. It doesn't sound completely like they wouldn't necessarily be buyers. I could see them going in either direction, though. It seems like there's probably not going to be a lot of teams who are going to be sellers this year. So if you're going to do that, it might be the right market for you to do it. but. It's like, I mean, just looking at Miles, for example, if they did decide, like, you know, you know, there's something really good out there, like, and you still want to be competitive. Like, the idea here is, like, if we just look and compare to the Orlando Magic, for instance, who last year were like, you know, this isn't going where we want it to go. We're going to abruptly veer to a rebuild. Like, I would look at what they got for Aaron Gordon as somewhat comparable here because, they have kind of like they're not identical players but similar career trajectories Mm. and that aaron was going to get traded to a good team to be like the last piece fortify defense and fill in offensively in spots that they need him to do and i could see miles doing something similar to that like they got back a future first round pick um salary filler with gary harris and then a young player on a rookie scale deal that they really liked in RJ Hampton that I've heard from people in Denver that like the Nuggets really didn't want to have to include RJ Hampton in that deal. I think it was somebody else initially and the Magic really pushed for that. So that's kind of like that would be like the baseline type of package that you would expect to get from, you know, Minnesota or New York or Charlotte or whichever team is interested in Miles, but at the same point in time you look at that Like, if you're a team that wants to stay competitive and you're going to have Sabonis at the five, it's like what you're saying. You're going to have to find somebody at that four spot who can provide you with weak side rim protection and also potentially be able to defend out on the perimeter and be this versatile guy and maybe knock down some threes. Otherwise, like, if you're just taking back, like, oh, and I'm just pulling names out of the air, but, like, you know, a guard on a rookie-scale deal because he's intriguing, like, that's not you – necessarily in my opinion staying competitive that's you taking back maybe the best package that might make you better in the long run but it really depends on what direction they want to go in and that's why this person's question i'm sorry i don't have your name in front of me that sent it in is really difficult for you or i to answer because i don't know exactly are they trying to stay competitive take a step forward are they willing to take steps back and also like this the turner sabonis question in general like to me the way, and I'm not saying that you're building an entire team around either one of them, but the types of pieces that you might want to go search for are very different, in my opinion, for each of them. So, like, to just rattle off, like, what what I think, like, you you gave general needs, but um, I think even those images would be sculpted slightly differently based on what pieces you're retaining. And some of that goes with Karis as well. Like, if Keris is still here, if he isn't here, like, are those concurrent moves? Or are they not?
0: uh Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, uh it seems like it should be concurrent to a degree. Um, but and based on all reporting, it seems like Karras is probably the most like I've I've seen reported that um and heard like just nationally that's been out in public. Like it seems like Karras is the most likely to be out, out of out of the out of the three, if it's him, Miles or Domas. Um so I don't know. I mean, if you are trading one of those guys, it seems like Karras would be going too, but um, that's what makes it so funky. And I think not to, not to bridge this into an even larger question, but, um, I, I don't think that it has to be a full on rebuild, but I just think if it's only moving one or two guys, like it just like, what is, I don't want to say, what is the point? Because I do still think that there's like, we've talked about so much, like there is still a lot here with this roster, but if you're just moving Karis and thinking like, oh yeah, that's, that's our fix. We'll be back next year. Um, I, I have problems with that. Like, I just, I I don't, I don't know. I mean, where do you, where do you look at that?
1: I mean, my guess is they might be thinking with Karis and obviously he has played from a scoring standpoint, his own yeah. offense has played better. Um, just on a side tangent, like. Karis, I would really like for you to find a better balance in rejecting some of these picks. I talked about this with Dan Fivali on Hardwood Knox, but like I I don't know this, but I imagine the coaching staff has conversations where it's like, okay, We know that you like to attack scoring to your left, like he can go to his right, but I think he's more comfortable going to his left, which is why we saw that at the end of the Warriors game. But like if he has a pick coming to his right, he's so bad, like either wants to go over and and hard refuse it and then come back and get over to his left or he just automatically rejects it. And in some cases, like a lot of coaches would tell you, like, that should be your first option. I mean, we saw that late in the game against the Miami Heat when Karis and Sabonis kind of had their little tussle out there getting on each other because Karis gave up that screen rejection and Karras didn't think Sabonis was communicating it, but like you give up a screen rejection, you are putting the big in a very bad position, whether that's a hedge or a drop, like your defense is going to be on the opposite side. But at the same point in time, like he's got to be more thoughtful with when he's doing that. Like if the screen is approaching fast, then that means the screener's man is also going to be approaching quickly and you're going to have the opportunity to get him off balance and get into the paint. But if it's, if it's a slower action in the half court and you're going to stand there and look at it and jab step, and jab step and then try to get your guy going one way and then like the herky jerky back to the other way. And you're just gonna drive into a crowd, which was what was happening sometimes in the fourth quarter because Draymond Green was just flat out playing free safety. Like he wasn't guarding miles unless miles was in the ball side corner, which is what the coaching staff was trying to accomplish. But then Karis was going to the opposite side of the court and going away from the picks. Like sometimes he just needs to let the offense do the work for him. Like there's, there's sets and stuff is, is set up in a specific way with where the players were for a reason. And sometimes it feels like he's making the offense harder than it needs to be. But that was a slight side tangent to answer your question. Like, I think that some of the thought process there might be like, you know, how much worse are we going to be? If Karis, like if they moved Karis. And like, I know this one got floated out there and I'm not even saying that like, oh, yes, I would definitely do this or no, I wouldn't. I mean, you cover the calves, so you would have a stronger opinion than me. But it was put out there that the Pacers might have interest in calling Sexton. So in that particular instance, obviously, Sexton isn't going to be playing this year. So you move Karis to Cleveland. And my guess is the idea there would be he might be able to come on a discount and restricted free agency because he's coming off an injury. You could have him under a cost controlled contract longer, longer time. Maybe you see him as a more consistent score for you than what Karis LaVert has been. And in the meantime, like you still might organically be able to get, you know, a decent pick in this year's draft because you're not going to be getting productivity from Sexton and Karis LaVert isn't going to be here. So like, maybe that would be some of the thought process behind it. And I'm not like rubber stamping that saying that's something that I would necessarily do. It's just like, if he was the only person you were going to move, that might be what they're thinking.
0: Yeah, no, I think there's some credence to that because, especially like you talked about, um, like even with this team, kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to say writing the ship, but they are four and two in their last six, so it's been better. Like you said, there's been better stuff. Like this team still is just like, oh, an an active miracle would have to happen for this team to make the playoffs to a degree. Like,
1: yeah, they
0: they'd have to play so well down the back end. Um, and I kind of like, I, I don't know if. We would have to have a, a separate pod talking about Sexton at some point because that would be that, that's a whole can of worms. Yeah. Like, in, in all honesty, he has some of the that's, same words, carrots, carrots. That's does. why I hesitated and to like,
1: name the specific name, but like I'm sure just,
0: people will freak out about that. But, right, right. <laughs> um, but like, no, I mean that is something that they that has been brought up a little bit. Like, of course, I think it was Joe Varden from the Athletic put that out, but also said like it's just an intriguing idea, and the right. the, the Pacers like Colin Sexton, but they haven't actually engaged in talks around him. So. Um, but I do think like you're mentioning, like that is something that I kind of would be like the idea of it is something that I'd, I'd be comfortable with the team doing. Cause I think that is kind of the right way to approach the rest of the season in all honesty, like as much as I think, uh, it would be, but it seems like they want to go for the playoffs. I would prefer that they obviously remain competitive, but getting a, a good pick in this year's draft, picking in the top 10 for the first time since Paul George would be, would be nice. I think we saw how Paul George impacted the team. Uh, obviously you're not expecting to get a, a guy who's probably going to be a hall of famer um, at, with the 10th pick every time, but also just having the opportunity and knowing that you might have the chance to select somebody even better. Like that's, I think that's worth it, especially with how the year started and the, the way that the season's un- unfolded itself. And I think like you mentioned too, with Orlando, the way that the plan is cut down teams actually being sellers at the deadline, like other than Indiana, I think Detroit is like the only team that's really been mentioned as a team that is trying to actively, um, sell players with the intention of like, you know, not necessarily not, not again, not the Indiana doesn't want to get better, but like, I mean, Sacramento has been mentioned as wanting to move buddy healed Marvin Bagley, but that's been a thing for like three years and they it's been mentioned too, like they want to get better and like, I just think this is a kind of golden opportunity to really say, all right, we have a chance to kind of hit a soft reset here and really try and up our odds for the next two or three years. Well, knowing that we really can't make a huge impact this year And this group needs to be different. So I would just, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe I'm a little bit too driven because I've been so closely tied with the draft the last year and a half and, and watching the guys coming up right now, but, I just see a lot of ways where there there are probably guys who who could go in the top ten that I would I would not go as far as say more talented than Domas because he's hit in a way that like you just don't expect guys to hit. But like I think like just looking at like Jaden Ivy from, from Purdue, if uh, I don't know if you've seen him at all, he's an absolute joy to watch. But uh, like let's say the Pacers somehow got like the fifth or sixth pick in the draft and Jaden fell that far, he probably wouldn't. But point being, if he did, there is no one on the Pacers since not even Paul, like even, I mean, Paul was never super, super bursty or anything. He's just big and covers ground well and flows in, in, in his movements. But like, there has not been a player on the Pacers who has the kind of downhill gravity and burst that a player like that, like, like Jaden Ivy has. And I just like, there's not anybody in my recollection of watching the Pacers that's ever been like that. And I think that's where you see value in like, okay, you know, picking in the top 10 probably would be kind of nice for this team. So, my long-winded way of saying I, I, I'm I'm kind of there with you. Like I think the idea of okay, maybe you do bring on somebody who is hampered to end the year or you know looking for a new situation. I don't know. I'm I'm rambling a little bit, but yeah.
1: No, I don't disagree with your overall premise at all that like I don't know what it would take because I mean I do think the team is underperformed. I expected them to be mm-hmm. better than what they are, but I don't know what it would really take for me to see to be like, yeah, they I have a different opinion of what their ceiling is so with that in mind it does seem like the right move would be to be willing to take you know a swing on something like that or be looking to try to maximize what your pick could be and again i understand that herb simon doesn't want to tank but i don't think it's necessarily going to take that but um yeah i mean that's some of the future looking stuff to kind of piggy off so should i go to my second question or I'm, I mean, we've asked a lot of questions. Well, oh,
0: yeah. What's your second question?
1: <laughs> okay. So my second question is kind of of the present moment, but also one of the players that would be retained, no matter what the Pacers do, it sounds like um, one person asked, you know, and I, I definitely want to put it this way, but I'll just word it the way that they did was Duarte's start to the season, somewhat of a fluke, like here in December, he's, he's had a pretty rough go of it with the exception of when he completely destroyed Evan Fournier in that uh, (laughs) Knicks game. Um, Let's look at his stats for December here. So yeah. So Duarte is shooting 25% from three on about five attempts per game, averaging 12 points. And he was shooting 40% from three in October over seven games and 35% from three in November over 14 games. So Obviously, his efficiency from deep, he's not shooting the ball well off of the pull-ups in December. Really isn't shooting the ball that well off the pull-ups in general. 25.8%, but in December, that's 15.8. Um, so just Duarte and what like you're seeing of Duarte lately versus earlier in the season, and then also what I mentioned and hinted at earlier, like the team as a whole, the three-point shooting is rough. Um, and not just even in December right now they're dead last for this month and three point percentage they're the only team shooting below 30% from three in December, but also for the year I believe that they're at 28% and then an overall spot up efficiency, which would include just for people who may not know on how synergy tracks this, like that's not just like a catch and shoot three or a catch and shoot jump shot. Like if you're running a pick and roll and, and you kick out of it and then like, let's say Duarte puts the ball on the floor two or three times and, and, and does something like that's a spot up attempt as well. But the Pacers are 29th in efficiency um, from spot up opportunities. So um, I guess my main question would be what your thoughts are on some of Duarte's struggles here of late and then do you think there's a way that they can turn around some of that three-point percentage, or do you just think this is who they are?
0: Uh, well, that's a great question. I, I I, think in terms of what has gone on with Chris, I I think fluke is too far. Like,
1: yeah,
0: I thought he was – I mean, he legitimately was fantastic. And I think that the confidence he displayed in the way that he was playing, like, that's not a fluke. Um, You know, maybe some of the shooting luck in in the way that like he's been guarded differently It's or not even entirely differently, but like he's on scouting reports. I mean, that makes a difference. Um, The biggest thing for me, though, is especially once TJ McConnell went down, I mean, they started asking him to do more on the ball. And he even with TJ McConnell upright, he'd been doing more on the ball with the second unit Um, and. I think that has played part of part of that because, I mean, we've talked about this before too. Like he's just much more suited to be a play finisher right now. And I get wanting to, to get more on-ball reps out of him and see what it looks like with the second unit. But, I mean, I think that has led to some tougher shots. And also too, like just with the ball in his hands, instead of coming off of an action and getting the ball in his hands, like he just doesn't have quite the same vision. Um, so that's led to some more turnovers. And I think the shot selection hasn't been as great. And he's better getting to the rim with a full head of steam than necessarily, you know. I mean, he has the craft and pick and roll, but it's it's more flashes than you know, there consistently. Um I also think it feels like the shoulder injury is still bothering him, and that's played into his shooting. I don't want to just use that as a crutch, but would you agree with that? Because it, it it has seemed like it's still bothering him to a degree.
1: It really makes me wonder what exactly that injury was, like, because they never exactly said mm-hmm. like it was just said a shoulder soreness, but like There's been games where he looks like he is in legitimate pain. Like the one time I think it was, and this was a while ago, but when they were playing the Bulls, if you watched it on the Bulls broadcast, he took a tumble and fell on that shoulder that was already bothering him. And he looked like, you know, ouch. And then the rest of the game, I haven't seen him massaging it quite as much, but it seems like he's just kind of banged up overall because he left the one game. I don't remember if that was to get a look at that knee that he had had hit earlier in the year, I believe, against the Raptors. And then I've seen him massaging his shooting hand. Like, I I don't know. And obviously, like, there is a such thing as the rookie wall. And he was playing a lot of minutes early in the season. So some of it might be wear and tear. Maybe we'll even see, you know, after four days off, maybe some of his shooting picks back up. But I do agree with you that it's kind of an interesting balance and, and goes back to the entire thing with this team. Because What's good for him in the long-term may be for some of these on-ball reps to not be great, like just to be letting him do it. Because, you know, if you can see him do, I mean, he shows some flashes sometimes in isolation or in the way he can drag out a hedge and still shoot when the, when the big recovers back, that it's like, that's good for his overall long-term development to be getting that types of reps. Is it good for the team in the short-term?
0: No, probably. I, I don't, not.
1: I don't really think that. I think that for the short-term, it would be better to be seeing him do more in handoffs and more, Just uh, and to give a very specific example, I might write about this more in depth later because I did notice one play very early in the season that I thought was pretty telling. But overall, he seems much more comfortable on the left side of the floor than the right side of the floor to me when he's shooting in the left corner, he's more accurate. And like you're not just only going to ever put him there because he shoots better on that side. Like he's going to have to hit shots on both sides of the floor. But he likes to step back, moving to his left. If he's going to get to like his pull up baseline two, it's usually with his footwork going to the left baseline. Um, If he comes off a handoff, he's like Doug McDermott. He wants to go moving to his right so that he can square up, plant his left foot and go to the basket. Versus if he's on the right side, then he's going to be putting the ball down with his left. Um, just little things like that. At times, it doesn't really work with this group of people for that geometry to be in play, because for very good reason, like a lot of times if like, let's just pretend you're running angle pick and roll. So it's Karis LeVert and Sabonis on the left slot. And then you'll have Brogdon on at the opposite slot on the right. And then it will be Chris Duarte in the right corner. And then a lot of times it will be Miles there in the left corner because they want to put the center And the ball side corner to get his guy out of the paint that all makes like perfect sense geometry wise and where you're putting people. But again, like Duarte seems a lot more comfortable from the left side of the floor. But if you do that, then you're putting miles on the weak side corner and his guys while he is seeing harder closeouts this year. If he's not the shooter and he doesn't have the ball, his guy is still roaming off. So then you're muddying up the two-man game a little bit. So it's not like there's a great way always to position these people. And, like, again, eventually Duarte is just going to have to get better at at hitting shots. Like, it's an open catch-and-shoot three regardless. But he does seem like if he sees a closeout, he seems more comfortable sidestepping to his left versus his right. And then there was a moment between him and Justin that I might write about early in the year where it was very clear to me that he wanted to have uh, occupancy in the left corner. And they had a little bit of a debate about that. But um, I think some of that goes into it, because lately, like I said, with what they've been doing with the centers, he doesn't always get to be over there. But I'd like to see him doing a little bit more in handoffs. And then the other thing is. I don't know. I looked up these numbers this morning and it didn't surprise me at all. But the Pacers barely do anything off of screens in terms of like in comparison to last year. And obviously nobody's quite to the caliber of like Doug McDermott flying off of picks. But if they did not have Justin Holiday, they would be doing basically nothing off of screens. Like early in the year, Duarte was doing some of that because they would run. And I don't know if people will understand what I'm describing, but they would run like a flex set. So, you know, a person would go across the lane and screen for Sabonis as you do out of flex to flash to the basket. If they couldn't get Sabonis off of that, then he would immediately become a screener on the baseline. And then the other big out of the flex who would be up at the elbow would drop down and be the second screener. And Duarte would cut along the baseline to the right side. And he's like four of 20 shooting off of screens and like he wasn't necessarily making that shot and then another problem that would occur, which is why I'm guessing this set hasn't been seen in quite a while. Is the second big was like always setting a moving screen, no matter who it was like they were never like dropping down the elbow and staying stationary so they got whistled for that some. But, like, other than that, or if they run that little elevator screen pick on a baseline out-of-bounce play or that, like, screen-to-screen or triangle that they call, like, they're not bringing shooters, like, and not Chris, at least, off of screens. Like, Justin does a lot out of Veer and other stuff. But, like, they do not get a lot of action in that way in general. And what's weird about it is is that Duarte, as I recall, which I don't have access to these numbers anymore, I looked at him over the summer, but at Oregon, he shot the three well off of motion, And that hasn't really shown up yet. So to some degree, it's like he's the most like if you're going to improve the overall team's three point shooting, he seems like the lowest hanging fruit to get those numbers back up. And like what you're saying, whether that's injury and him just needing to like heal up and rest and get past the rookie wall or if it's getting him easier shots, because I feel like that's part of it. Like early in the game against the Bucks, I felt like there was a lot of players who had open shots. But then we're dribbling themselves into more difficult ones or we're passing the ball and then somebody else was getting a more difficult shot instead of taking like the earlier one that was right there for them. I feel like they as a team could be better at that. But like just getting Duarte off the ball and getting him some easier looks, I feel like would would change some of his fortunes. Cause like if you just look at the overall team's three point shooting, they do not their top three shooters for the month in volume which Justin's only played two games, but he's averaging six and a half per game. Miles is averaging five and a half and Brogdon's averaging 5.1. And Chris Duarte's basically at five. They are all shooting below 30% from three right now. Like, and those, those are arguably your top shooters. Like Karras is Karras and O'Shea are the only two. Well, Sabonis is, but he's only averaging like one to three a game. Like, I think he's taken like a total of 10, so whatever, but um Yeah, those guys and and some of the stuff with Malcolm, like he just hasn't really shot the three well in general this season. And it really hasn't mattered whether it's been off the dribble or off the catch. He hasn't been great in either way. But like Miles has suddenly like and I don't know what their plans are with him, but like hopefully other teams, if they are considering moving one of the bigs, aren't recognizing this because I think he's like 13 of his last 45 threes or something yeah so like that started to show a little bit of a drop so hopefully he can rebound some of that a little bit here in the coming games but I feel like Duarte is a pretty clear answer there and then you're just hoping that Miles starts shooting it like he was earlier in the season other than that I don't really think there's a clear answer because a lot of these guys like they just don't have a stable full of like I mean you and I have talked about it before they don't have like movement shooters so like if they're not getting the ball to the middle of the floor and passing it out for easier shots, which is what I think is the easier way for them to be getting some of these versus like, you know, I'm trying to dribble against a hedge or I'm dribbling against a a switch and trying to create space for myself. And then I'm taking a three. Um, I don't know. I've rambled about it enough. Like, what do you think? No, I mean, you're exactly right.
0: Like that was something I thought about bringing up and talking about what the team needs, and that's more dynamic shooting. Like, uh, like obviously Justin does it to a solid degree. And and like you mentioned with Chris having his struggles, like the team has guys who can shoot, but it's not on variety. Like Malcolm ideally is like, I mean, maybe you can take some stuff off flare screens every once in a while, but mostly like he's, he's a pretty set shooter. Like he, he can't, he struggles a little bit with being crowded on his shots and he's not great off the dribble. Um, obviously Karis is kind of off the dribbler bust, which handicaps things a little bit in terms of his utility. Um, but, like, even then, like, Jeremy Lamb can do some – like you mentioned, like, one or two dribbles. But, like, there just really aren't movement shooters on the team. And I think uh, something that I've really kind of come to more, like, you get a lot more gravity if you're somebody who's hitting off movement, which sounds like, duh, like, no, of course. But I think especially in watching teams, like, like even watching Phoenix, like, uh, they get a lot more gravity out of their shooting because of the guys. Like, the the actions that they can run – their their players through uh to get their shots off. Um, like if even like I was I wrote something on Buddy Heal today and watching him play, I was like, oh wow, there's nobody on the Pacers that can do this stuff. Like, and he obviously has a worked as a player, but like again, like having somebody like that who can do things consistently that is just causing the defense to have to torque a different way than downhill is huge. Because if you can combine with like if you can combine Malcolm going downhill with um you know, Chris coming off of off of movement from from the corner or something, to just to to make the tagger freeze or or think about what they're going to do. Like you just don't get that very often with the Pacers right now, and I I totally agree. I think that's been a, a huge issue with the offense so far this year. And you know, I think you could even part that and make a part of that like you're mentioning with you know just forcing two drawing two on the interior and kicking out. It's almost like we've seen that in the past and it's worked for Indiana, but um yeah yeah
1: and it worked late against the game in detroit and that's why i'll be interested to see if they continue to look at that and some of it too is like i said like not to go overboard with it because you know detroit even in unlike when they were up in detroit and they lost that game they're being i mean their backup big man was uh trey lyles and also like they were being very predictable in how they were going to double it. So it was just, it was pretty clear. Like, yeah, just keep doing this. Just keep bringing the ball up, passing it to the wing and dumping it in there because they're going to automatically double from the passer. Also bonus has to do is make the shortest pass back out and then you can pass the ball faster than they can rotate. Like that was a pretty easy decision versus like, you know, if it's the Raptors or somebody else, they will be a lot more uh, less predictable in where they're going to send the double teams from. And they might even send more than one person and make that a lot more crowded. But Um, I think that those are easier shots I think it's easier if you're getting the ball to like they did that against Milwaukee a couple times before they just lost their minds over the like last six minutes and just started turning the ball over like crazy but you know passing the ball out of the middle of the floor and getting some of those easier shots the thing that I said earlier about Chris at Oregon um, because like I think when we just see off screens like sometimes at least I do this I don't know about other people like I just automatically think of like a stagger or more motion offense Mm -hmm. or like, you know, Justin's always flying here, there and everywhere and taking shots off balance. Or you're thinking of like, you know, Marco Bellinelli being off balance. Like that can also just be, you know, a simple flare screen. And there's a lot of room for flare screens in the current offense, especially because they're not running a lot of set plays right now. Like a lot of it's just been random, which I think is good. But then it just feels like a lot of the time that like the guards or whoever doesn't actually see the big setting that pick. Like, you could see that in the last game they played against the Heat. Like, there was one time where Miles set a flare screen against the zone. Duarte was wide open in the corner, and he could have been, like, an inflatable tube guy at a car lot. Like, he wasn't going to touch the ball in that situation. So, um, I think that could make it more difficult. I do think that Duarte does do a pretty good job in general that, you know, abiding by the rule that if, you know, your tagger goes in, you lift up. If your tagger tags high, you drop down. I think he manipulates that okay probably better than, you know, most of the other guys on the roster, but um, some of it's just actual shot making and that's just not happening a lot for the Pacers right now, which is why I think it's important that finally over these last few games, which might explain, I mean, and I won't defend all of the things that Nate Bjorken did on offense because some of it I did think was pretty cookie cutter at times, but now you're seeing that some of the shot distribution has now started to go back to what it was last season and that like I said in December, their fourth and rim frequency. They're trying to get more at the free throw line and their three point shots. While it's not as low as last year, have the the three point attempt rate has started to drop because that's just not where they're getting the more consistent offense. I mean, especially when Sabonis, I think up until that last game was close to like seventy percent from the field. Let me see where he is for this month. Yeah, seventy one percent from the field in December. So like, kind of makes sense to just be you know taking advantage of that, but. Um, yeah, that was my long question about the overall three point attempt rate, because I I didn't even realize that they had been below 30% as a team so far this month.
0: I did not either. That is kind of insane to think about. Um, that's very bad. I think Detroit is the worst shooting team in the league this year and they're shooting better than that. So, yeah. And you've, we've both watched Detroit enough to be like, Hey, we, you do not want your team to look like Detroit spacing wise. Uh, but, yeah, what is my last question? I'm trying to – hold on a second. I, I flipped my page too early. Um, yes. So this is a little bit more minute. It's not a big grand scale question, but I was I, – for, for reasons, I've been thinking about this uh, more as the, um, as the season has wound down uh, – I mean, wound down, as, as the season has gone on. Uh, how have you felt about the free agent signings in the offseason? Now that we're 30-ish games in uh, and we've gotten a pretty solid look of how they, they seem to be utilized in the rotation and whatnot, where where are you at with that?
1: So we're basically talking about Torrey Craig and Brad Wanamaker.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there was quite a few questions about Brad Wanamaker. Um, the sad thing is is there's at times where like, even I want to say the third or fourth quarter against the Bucs where it was like, oh, hey, He's doing you know, things yeah. He he did a few decent like just ran just ran the offense like you're not going to notice him and that's okay but like it it went off without a hitch and then there's like halftime of the bucks game and what in the world is that possession? Like they're 1-4 they're trying to run 1-4 flat and oh, that was the worst
0: possession I've ever seen. In my I think life. that
1: was. Yeah. I mean, I think that went in like the Hall of Fame of possessions because it's like he's just standing up there waiting and it's like, oh, yeah, well, Karis has George Hill on him and I have Drew Holiday, but I'm not going to let I'm not going to give it to Karras to ISO at the end of the quarter. And then he takes it. Finally, Sabonis comes up. He attacks way ahead of the screen. Gets no traction off of that. So it just east west and then like dribbles in a loop back off the handoff and gets nothing there. And then the shot clock just runs out. Like they didn't even get a shot off, which, you know, I'm not expecting like complete pristine execution all the time at the end of a quarter or at the end of a game, but like that, that was rough. So, um, I guess like, yeah, there was a mixture of questions on Twitter about Brad Wanamaker and then like bring back Lance. And there was some moments in like my darkest spots where I was like, you know,
0: maybe we should.
1: (laughs) I was like, you know, and I I watched uh, Goga play the games against Grand Rapids. So I did see some of Lance and like Lance in general does not seem like a Rick Carlisle player to me like at all because no. i think like in rick carlisle's ideal world like everyone would be a 0.5 second player who makes all these quick decisions within like system are actually like an ideal ideal world it would all be random and they'd all be able to make those decisions that quickly all the time and lance is like a five second player like sometimes he can do that but he also still really likes to dance with the ball that's still a thing but i do trust lance to make pocket passes which seems to be uh, a weakness of this team for whatever reason, a lot of the time, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's ideal because Brad also struggled at the beginning of the game the other night, whenever the Pistons were pulling out that full court press, I think that teams are going to continue to press up on the Pacers guards because they've shown that they struggle against that to a degree. The Tory Craig thing's a little bit more interesting because like, You know, O'Shea, I mean, they've kind of been all over the place with that particular position, because as we recall in preseason, like Isaiah Jackson was getting a lot of the backup four minutes, and then the season starts and they're playing the Hornets and like we're just not playing any force like Torrey Craig played some but O'Shea didn't play at all. And then there was like the period where Torrey Craig was getting some more minutes, and then he has like the career game against Brooklyn. And then they tried Goga at the four with Sabonis, because obviously, if you're going to have all these bigs, you need to develop them. Mm-hmm. And then now we're back on the O'Shea Brissett bandwagon, which I think makes sense because he's making the three and also adds something, you know, especially in bench lineups. If they're going to continue to run like the differing schemes between Sabonis and Miles defensively, I think O'Shea is probably your most reliable low man in those situations with his ability to move sideline to sideline. And I just like seeing him getting minutes because of the strides that he made last year. And, and he can be a, you know, a success story in terms of somebody getting called up from the G league and making good on that for the Pacers. But there's not like another clear place to play Tori. I mean, they've even tried a couple times, some of those lineups to close some of the games while Rick Carlisle were out were interesting because O'Shea was playing at the three, but um, I don't know that you'd really want to be playing O'Shea and Tori at the same time um, a lot, but yeah, I mean the idea between behind signing Tori, as they said, was that that would give them somebody who could guard some of these, you know, wings that they've had trouble with. But now, like, I think, and he was six some in December, but he's played 27 total minutes in December so far. Tori has. Yeah. So what is your thoughts?
0: Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I think part of it, my—I don't know if you agree with this, but I think, well, like, would you agree that the roles, especially on, in like the mid, mid to end of the bench, have been pretty uh, up in the air? I earth?
1: was gonna like, say erratic. Very,
0: yeah, and I think yeah. that's been part of my biggest issue this year. Like, um, it's like I mean, especially like you, Keelan has his moments and he looks nice for that like five to seven game stretch and then he doesn't play well. And then he's kind of back out of the rotation. And um, I just, I don't, I don't want to say that it's the wrong way of doing things because again, I'm not Rick Carlisle. I don't know coaching like that, but to me, like, I think it's been very clear. Like I think Tory didn't hit a three for four games and then he got demoted very quickly in the rotation. Um, And like, I get it to a degree, like, you want him to be able to hit this stuff, but I I still think there are, like, valuable things that he was bringing, and I know Keelan brought things, but I don't know. Like, it just feels like, to a degree, there is some some issue with so constantly changing up what the back end of your rotation looks like. I don't know if you feel the same to that, but, um, like, I mean, even just, like, uh, I mean, I, I bitched about it as soon as it didn't happen, but, like, O'Shea not being in the rotation start, you're still wild to me, and it, it just – that it took that long for it to happen, has been weird. Like the, the whole thing with the, the back end of the rotation, just been a little bit odd to me.
1: Yeah, it feels like they toggle quite a bit between Jeremy and Keelan and O'Shea mm. and Tori over which of those people are going to get playing time. And sometimes, like obviously, Keelan has also been struggling to shoot the ball, but so has Jeremy. I mean, everybody has like Jeremy's five of 22 in December, Keelan's six of 18 in December. Um, Torrey's basically not shot because, like we said, he hasn't played that much. I think some of the thinking on certain nights might be like, well, you know, Jeremy can kind of get his own shot with the second unit and now Justin is back. So we'll lean in that direction versus, you know, Justin's out. And in theory, Keelan can provide some of the defense that Justin doesn't offer. Then Jeremy's not really going to give you that. So from a night to night basis, it makes some sense but I think we've talked about in the past, like when you don't have any kind of semblance of rotation, it never has felt like there's been a bench unit that's necessarily gelled. Cause that was one question that somebody sent in that was like, you know, what have been your favorite, least favorite, and most surprising lineups. I'm like, well, right off the bat, my least favorite lineup was when they kept playing. And I do think that it might've actually been an encore, a slightly on court positive, but like over a larger sample size, I can't imagine that it would have been. Cause like, I just didn't like the way that the McConnell over Goga, Sabonis minutes looked um, that one. And then like, I liked um, I think they played against the Sixers and it was like Torrey at the four with Keelan and justin and mcconnell and sabonis and like i didn't mind that and then they've moved O'Shea to the floor with sabonis some but there's never been or even just take miles in some of the minutes that he plays with the bench it doesn't feel like there's ever like a consistent groupings of who's gonna play with who like even just the bunks like spreading the starters out with hybrid units like which starters are gonna play together and some of that i get and this was like another question we can just fold right in here because somebody said you know what type of identity does this team need to have? And I don't know that I would necessarily say that they have an identity at all. Um, I don't know where you're at with that. Do you think that this team has an identity?
0: No, I still agree with that. Like, and we've talked about that on prior pods and like, I just think it's kind of funny how that even that leaks into the bench, like the, it like yeah. <laughs> just, it feels like they're not committed to any one thing and then it, it ends up becoming like, okay, well, this is why it looks like a mess at times. Uh, right, because it,
1: it, and that's the thing. That's what I, I totally agree. Because it feels like from game to game, just like the other night against the Pistons, and to some degree, I, I totally understand. Like you're playing the Pistons. Trey Lyles is a backup big. Like they basically have no rim protection on that particular night. You are probably just gonna, and especially because Malcolm Brogdon's also out, you are probably just gonna isolate Karis Levert a bunch of times against the big. Or, you know, you're going to be posting Sabonis more and take advantage of that gravity because that's what makes sense on that night for that game. And that's what's felt like it's like the exact opposite of like the Nate McMillan thing where it's like this. We are this team and this is what we do. And we're going to force force opponents to react to us. And there's no like real adjustment on our part from night to night. Versus now, it feels like you know we don't necessarily have an identity, but we do have pieces that we can shift around and try to take advantage of, you know, different matchups or whether we're going to play more random or more system from night to night, or exactly how our defensive coverages are going to be have changed somewhat over the se- how, as the season has progressed. Like, and I see the benefits to that, and I see that Rick Carlisle has made a lot of in-game adjustments that the prior two coaching staffs I don't think would have done. But at the same time, it never really feels like they've really landed on who they are. And maybe that's because they don't necessarily have the type of roster to say, like, this is what we're going to be. And we really do just kind of have to take advantage of whatever edges we can find against opponents. But to a certain extent, I think that should probably be telling you something about the limitations of your roster. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's, I think it's good to be able to adjust. Like I think most rosters should want to be able to have versatility, but it doesn't so much feel that way to me as it feels like from night to night, we feel like we have to be making like all of these adjustments in order to get like, to stay close in some of these games.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I can't, I can't really disagree with that at all, um, and I, I, I fall on the same line with that.
1: Um, I, I guess that actually is all of our questions, but I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it since we didn't talk about it. Um, yeah,
0: I, I think I know what you're about to bring up. Um, <laughs> Do you? The Tim McMahon article?
1: Oh, no, it wasn't. Good. We didn't bring that one up. So, yeah, we can talk about that, too, if you want yeah. to. Uh,
0: well, what were you going to bring up?
1: I was going to bring up the miles article.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. there's so much to talk about. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's start with the miles one. What did you want to bring up about it?
1: Well, I mean, I'm kind of like, and this is no, I don't want to throw any shade at Jared. I think he's a tremendous writer. One of my favorite writers at the athletic and like the fact that he was able to come out of market and get all these people to say all of this stuff on record and, and cover the team, like tremendous job by Jared. But like, I don't know if there's very many articles where I disagreed with more quotes than that one. And then after the fact, like, and I know miles like wore the pacer gear to the game and then said that, like, you know, I talked to my teammates about this. I talked to Rick, I talked to Kevin and you know, they, they know where I'm coming from and this wasn't me trying, you know, it wasn't about touches or play calls or my teammates. It was just about role clarity and, I was just saying how I felt and like, I, I understand that to a degree, but at the same time, like if you had talked to all the people who actually like matter in this situation, which is your teammates and the front office and your coach, like, I don't really know why this needed to be set on the record. And like, by the time I got done reading all of it, that's kind of how I felt about all of it. Like I did agree with uh, Rick Carlisle's one quote, but some of them were some of the quotes in here are just so uh, head scratching to me. Like, and not just like the glorified role player comment, but when he said, uh, "Ah, here it is. Yeah, he said, I had an effort mindset that night. And this is with regard to the game against the Wizards. That every time I would touch it, I wanted to be as aggressive as possible. It worked out when you're hitting shots because everything looks good. Then the night after that, I had a down night because I didn't feel the same flow within the offense. It felt like, okay, you had the 40 point game. Now let's get back to the status quo. Like, okay. I have like so many questions about that because that was the second game of the season. And like, I loved watching miles in that game, like kudos, like if you're wide open, because the wizards really weren't guarding him in that game. And you're going to like take advantage of making opportune cuts and be shooting over the top of guys when they roam off of you and be acting as a trailer. And if they do close out, putting the ball on the floor, like tremendous. Like, I think that's all great, but like you had played one game and you have an effort mindset that every time I would touch it, I wanted to be as aggressive as possible. Like that's what happened after just like one game against the Hornets. And then to say that then the next night I didn't have, I had an off night. I didn't feel the same flow within the offense. Like I'm not him. I don't know how he felt in that particular game, but the defensive coverage from the Miami heat was completely different than the defensive coverage that the wizards were showing him. So like, I don't really think it was so much the team being like, okay, it's back to the status quo. Like, we're not going to let you do any things anymore as much as it was like him taking advantage of what the defensive coverage was. And then like, obviously he doesn't play in the rest of that game and O'Shea did, but like, I promise you that O'Shea wasn't having plays run for him. Like, especially down the stretch of that game over and over again, Brogdon and Sabonis were signaling for Spain pick and rolls and O'Shea was playing out of the corner. So like, I don't know when O'Shea had an opportunity to build rhythm. Like to a certain extent, I understand his whole position and and that you would want to move up at your job and that, you know, he's had a very up until this point until now when he started to struggle a little bit from three, like he's had a very high efficiency, low usage season. He's shown he can, he's improved in certain ways, I think. But like, I'm sympathetic to an extent, but I don't really understand exactly how that role would exactly change. And I do think that they've like, I mean, it was funny then the night before this article came out because like the first play of the game, they ran the set for miles out of horns twist to get him a shot. They like were letting him do more in ball screens. He did more at the five. And then it was, I really was eye opening. I thought, I don't remember if it was against the bucks or the Pistons, but I remember you and I talked about it. I think it was on this podcast where I mentioned that like under Nate Bjorkren, they used to run like a lot of wedge sets to get, Sabonis post-ups like not a lot but that was a way that they actually like got him a post touch was for Doug McDermott to set that little back pick at the elbow and then Sabonis would slide to the block and the other night that was an opening set with Miles in that role sliding down to the block and then they like he got bumped off the route so they didn't enter it and it ended up being like motion strong with Karis doing something but like it seems like they're trying to accommodate what he said but then it's kind of like In certain circumstances, like, and I have no problem with him playing like the way that he did against the Wizards, like if he wants to do that every game and he's going to shoot when those types of opportunities are there or put the ball on the floor, like more power to you. But um, some of it's just a little bit like it can be, I don't really know how to word this, but it's like, and I think the same thing with Sabonis, like the way that you're using both of them, like an example I would give for Sabonis when they played the Sixers, like they called a pick and pop play early for him in the shot clock to pop to three with like 15 seconds left on the clock. And it's just like, you know, why am I watching this? Like, it it just kind of in a certain way feels like, you know, an accommodation versus like what's going to be actually optimized for this team to, to be the best that they can be. And then also just in a sense, like, I agree with what Rick Carlisle said, like, and this goes back to miles, even before Sabonis was traded here or started to be a starter like there are opportunities within this offense to assert yourself and be aggressive which I thought he did in that Knicks game before the article came out like he was looking for ways to manufacture his own shots and do things by just finding spots because they're not running a lot of sets like these last like two weeks they're running like four or five main actions and the rest is just out of random so like I don't think anyone's just like looking at Miles and telling him like, all you can do is stand in the corner. Like, does it make more sense for him to be the spacer in the current iteration of the roster? Yes, obviously, because he started the the season shooting the ball so well. But, like, I don't think anyone's just being, like, glue your feet there and you're not allowed to do anything else. I don't know what you thought of all of it.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I felt very similarly. Um, I think – like, like you mentioned, I did not really, again, I like, I like Jared a lot too. I didn't, I didn't, I did not really agree with a lot of uh, some of the idea that, you know, maybe the Pacers should build around terror instead of Sabonis. And there was a piece that came out in the ringer from, from Jonathan Sharks, who another writer I really respect that came out a few days before with a similar ideology behind it. And I just, I just don't. And I'm not saying like, I, I don't know, like you and I have talked about this and maybe maybe we're being too nuanced, but I think that's that's kind of our shtick. That's what we do. um We're trying to be fair and honest to everybody on the team. Like, I do think there are ways that you could look at it and say, OK, maybe you could if you get more for Domas, you build not around miles, but with miles there, you know. um But in terms of like actual role, like I just don't know, like what else is he supposed to be doing on offense? Like. I think you could maybe say, all right, maybe he gets two or three more post ups a game or something. But even then, like he's not, he's not a great post up player. Um, I do like, like, like we've talked about. There have been a lot of moments, both him and Domas, yeah, who flash into the paint, getting great, uh, great seals, wide open looks from like within the restricted area, and the guards just don't hit them because of whatever the hell has happened to the post entry passes this year. Not that they were great last year, but it's just been even worse this year.
1: But yeah, that's totally fair.
0: So like that, I do I do see that. And I'm like, okay, I, I get that. But again, it's not just Miles. Like that happens to, to Domas just as much. And uh so I guess you can you can make that case, but like again, like, okay, is that really better for your offense to give Miles a a 12 foot post up that probably ends up being a, a fadeaway? Um, like he's okay at that, but he's not great at it. So I don't know. Like honestly, I think the the idealized form of Miles is like we've seen at times this year. Like, and, and Rick, yeah. that was the like like you mentioned, this was the one, one quote I liked. Like Rick, Rick saying, "I think he's had a career year playing in his role the way that we've asked him to," and I don't disagree with that. Like, and I I even think that there have been moments where Miles, and again, part of it's defense, but like part of it too is he hasn't. He's been a lot more aggressive this year but it's not always a constant um like i think there have been a lot of moments where he looks like it and he's he's putting that string it together Uh, the biggest thing has just been the revelation with him like even with him having the slump as a shooter um he's still taking them which is like we couldn't say that last year or any year before like that was not a thing like the fact that i can look at his, his his basketball reference and say in december He's taking almost six threes a game and hitting 29 and a half percent. That's, it that doesn't sound good and it's not great, but that he's still doing it is huge because last year that's like, okay, he's taking two and a half or three threes because he's, he's passing out of them. Um, but all that right. to say, like, I understand wanting more or wanting to feel valued, but I just don't think it comes in a different role. I think maybe it comes on a team that isn't chopping you continuously, but, like that's where I could, I could understand where he's coming from. But again, like, like you're mentioning with, in terms of having a bigger role, I just don't, I don't know where that's coming from.
1: Right. And I think that that's totally fair about like, cause I mean, the play I brought up earlier, like Karis could have given it to miles behind the corner pin in and instead he took a little pull up two on the baseline. That was like a prayer shot. Like that type of stuff I think is completely fair. And I do want to give miles credit. Cause like I said, I do think that there's things he's improved at. Like his escape three where he's doing a one dribble like that's a revelation as well I think that there's stuff that he's doing better at I think I still overall envision him and that's why I was happy with his progress up until this article had come out because like I see him like that's why I wrote two years ago I think he's a six foot eleven shooting guard like I think he's best suited playing off of the action and doing some of this stuff because otherwise like and it's not that when he's out there at solo five that he can't be doing stuff as a screener I think that they've tried to tinker with his footwork a little bit and helping him to be able to get more shots on the roll so he's out of those picks quicker but it's kind of impacted some of the contact he's making in some of the games so that's something he would have to figure out and maybe with more reps that would change but it's like I don't think in the current iterator in iteration of the roster that there's a strong argument for that because it's like what you mentioned like I think he had the one play against the Pistons that was great where he sealed in front of the basket against one of the guards got an and one like You know, I, again, I have no problem with that. I think he's gotten better at finding places to duck in, but then they like ran a play against the bucks for him to post up drew holiday. And then he got like stonewalled. So it's like, in those situations, it's like, is this, is this what more needs to look like? Like, I'm not entirely sure that it does. Like I understand more being horns twist where like miles and Sabonis are both at the elbows, both setting screens. And then, you know, one or the other can roll and he can, come out behind the exit screen, like that type of stuff. I kind of understand, but otherwise it just kind of feels like, you know, are you just doing it to like, make sure he gets touches. So he stays engaged. Like, I, I don't know. It's tough to try to figure that out. And I'm not exactly sure. Like even if a different team, like obviously a team that trades for him would probably be doing it to play him at the five. I don't think another team's going to want to do more of like the double big thing that the Pacers are doing. So he would have more opportunities to probably be the screener in those situations. But here it's like, you look at it. And I think up until these last few weeks, you could probably make a strong case that Sabonis wasn't even doing enough of the Sabonis stuff. And it kind of sounds like to me that like, Miles wants to be doing more of that, like having more of an opportunity to do some of that stuff at the five that Sabonis gets to do. And it just doesn't really feel like there's a clear path to how you're going to figure out doing that. Because, like, in the reverse of it, like, we know that to this point, like, Miles is a better shooter than Sabonis. And even if his guy isn't necessarily guarding him when he's off the ball, like, they are more apt to close out to him this year than they were last year. So, like, you know, it, it didn't really make sense in preseason, quite frankly, when Sabonis was, was the one in the corner so frequently and they were running like delay stuff through miles. And I think that's kind of why they went away from some of that early on in the year where they're not doing it quite as much interchangeably. But, um, you know, I'm not him. I don't know exactly what he wants, but it doesn't. I didn't think all of the quotes in that article made complete sense to me. And I don't really know how you accomplish both of those things. But I think that that was my general take on on where that is at. But but we can talk about the Tim McMahon article, too. A lot of things have transpired in these eight days, I'm telling you.
0: Yeah, just a few things. Um, wow, this was uh, – I think this one was – I want to be careful in how I talk about this one. Uh, I had some pretty strong reactions to this. I mean, this wasn't anything that was honestly all that new to me, I think – I mean, you and I talked about this when Rick got hired, uh, like that. You know, we were a little bit like, okay, well, you're going from somebody who was a quote-unquote control freak to how they were micromanaging everything to maybe the most notorious micromanager in the NBA. Um, I think something that stuck out to me, and I, the way I want to lead off, um, no, Rick Carlisle did not do anything that is punishable necessarily by like by by law but uh reading the personal accounts of what he did to Dennis Smith Jr and how he handled players is kind of despicable um and i i just want to be honest too you know being around basketball long enough and and talking to people who are who are in it um like i think it's more of a problem that we can have this article come out and be like, well, this isn't that bad compared to other stuff. Okay. Well, it's still bad. Like that, that somebody can be this high up in an organization, command the level of respect. It's not even about respect, but have the the level of power and and whatnot that they do and treat people like this on a daily basis. That shouldn't be the norm. Like that really bothers me that, that we can have this be a thing because as much as I would uh, like, just in all honesty, like the Mavs, uh, every there has been a ton of bad stuff with the Mavs organization Um, in terms of like they had the giant sexual harassment case that came out. And uh that that piece from Sports Illustrated, I think it was two or three years ago about how awful their front office and organization was. And that is terrible. That stuff is worse. But that doesn't mean that we can just sweep this stuff under the rug and say, well, it's not as bad as the other thing. So why should we talk about it? Um, It's not me coming out trying to slander Rick Carlisle, but if we don't hold people accountable for this kind of stuff, then it's just going to keep happening over and over again. So I would feel wrong not bringing it up and being honest about it. And it really did bother me that this stuff came out Um, or more than just that, that that is something actually that happened. So yeah, that's my, my intro monologue there.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think around the time when we talked about, I don't think it was the podcast when we talked about that he had been hired, but that there was rumors that, Uh, there was some interest between the Pacers and Carlisle. I'm thinking, I think we read like a tiny excerpt of Tim Cato's article where he talked Mm -hmm. about um, that he appreciated, It it was a personal story where he had talked about like Carlisle following up with him later about a story and making sure he had everything that he needed and that you could find a lot of stories like that too, but that there were people throughout the organization that from players and, you know, coaching staff and other stuff that weren't necessarily sad to see that a change was happening. And I kind of thought over the summer, and I still think this to a degree, the fact that Jenny Busick and Mike Weinar did come with him from Dallas to here leads me to think that at least not everyone felt that way. But I mean, certainly there, this stuff was out there before we had specific examples of it because it, it had been reported out of Dallas. I mean, that, I mean, Mark Cuban, I think himself did an interview where he had said something along the lines of like, I used to think that like an X's and O's expert was the ultimate advantage. And now like, take this for what you will, given who they hired and also how important you see this. But like he talked about Steve Nash giving Kevin Durant a hug and how he now sees like, the value of of being a relationship builder and and the way the nba is moving towards some of that which it did seem that way with some of the hirings that occurred over the summer that that's kind of what teams were looking at and it it also seemed from the pacers standpoint that they tried to like surround the coaching staff with like ronald norad and other people who have you know reputations for building you know I know there was a lot of good things said about him in Charlotte and whenever he was a G league coach in terms of fostering relationships. And some of that he had learned from Brad Stevens and having been coached by Brad Stevens. So, you know, I obviously don't have personal one-on-one experience with any of these people to be able to, you know, cast things about their character, but I don't think it looked great that like Dennis Smith Jr. did come out on Twitter and say like, this is what happened. And I did notice that I, I want to say, I can't remember who the other player was. I think, yes, Justin Anderson kind of said, you know, that wasn't my experience. And I don't think that that diminishes what Dennis Smith Jr.'s experience was like, just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean that it didn't happen to somebody else. But I do think it's important to take all of that opinion into account. But like, yeah, you don't like to see that. I think that it's possible, you know, to be an X's and O's expert and still You know, be able to do both sides of that. And you hope that here in Indiana that there's been more of a a balance in that regard. And also, I know that it was brought up from some people from Dallas who said, you know, and I, I think that Tim McMahon obviously is very good at his job and his reporting. But, like, you know, the Mavericks aren't off to a great start. Like, I don't think that the Jason Kidd offense and, and defense and everything is is going well. Like, when the Pacers played the Mavericks, I, I remember watching that game back and thinking, like, what is happening? Like, four of these possessions, like, they had a high post entry into a low post injury where Kristaps where and Luca were both on the same side of the floor like not a high low that you really want to strive for. And then another snake screen where Chris rolled directly into Lucas space. Like their overall spacing was like a mess. So, you know, it would, it, it kicking dirt on the guy who's gone is kind of timely given what their current situation is. And I don't want to make it all about that. Like there's never a bad time to report on some of that type of stuff, but the timing of it is somewhat convenient, but I do agree with you that it is, important to talk about. And I certainly hope that that type of stuff isn't happening currently with any of the Pacers on the roster in the locker room or with the rest of the coaching staff, especially given what this team went through and what we know was going on behind the scenes last year. So you would hope that 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 would be cleaned up and that that would have been a conversation during the hiring process that you wouldn't want to have a repeat of that.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Um, And I think you make a really great point in talking about this being a convenient timing for the Mavs, and i agree um but also too like i think tim mcmahon talked about it on it was either hoop collective or or low post but like i'm sure like no doubt some of this stuff is coming out of leaks from from the front office but it's still corroborated stuff that happened so it matters right. and uh i think that's where there tends to be a uh like a a, a loss with some people, you know, there's like, oh, this is BS that came out of the the master office. Like, yeah, it, it did, but it it still happened. So I don't know Yeah, I, I think we're on the same page, but it's just, and I know some people will probably get frustrated with it, but was there anything else out of that that stuck out to you or, or are you ready to move on?
1: No, I'm ready to move on. I think we've covered all of the, it's kind of funny, like a week or two ago, I like literally tweeted about how the Pacers are so far off the national radar that they didn't even talk about Justin holiday being put in health and safety protocols. And within a week, it's just been nonstop like Pacer narratives and very few of them have to do with the actual on court product. It's, you know, uh, little sound bites, like I'm a glorified role player. And and I love this little team and real manufactured star and.
0: Yeah, I will say I got more pod requests uh, in the last two weeks than I have in like my entire time covering basketball. So, that's something. Oh um, well, no, actually, not the not the flex, but I do get pod requests fairly regularly, not as often as you do, but um, yeah, those. I feel like every single podcast I went on, I was like, you know, anytime I'm asked to come on and talk about the Pacers, it just never feels like it's actually a good thing. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe less of this, but yes. Um, well, Caitlin, I guess to close out on a more positive note, what are you excited for about Christmas or just the holidays in general? Cause somehow that is four days from now. Uh, yeah. That's absolutely crazy. insane to think about. Uh, that really did not hit me until like two days ago and um, I was like, oh, wow, Christmas is in a week. That's that's a thing. So, yeah. What are you looking forward to?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, because the Pacers had four days off, I actually took one of them. Like, I feel like I kind of have to be abreast of stuff. So even when they're not playing, I'm generally watching film or doing something like I felt mm-hmm. like I needed to sit around and be like, Ooh, they, you know, who might potential trade targets be? So I can be informed about that. But, um, I also took some time out and actually just like wrapped presents, which was strangely relaxing yesterday. And then, yeah, I'm just looking forward. Like I remember growing up, I always like, and this is probably going to be not anything the Pacers want to hear, but, um, I always like wanted to see if the Pacers were going to play on Christmas and now obviously they wouldn't, cause they're not going to be a market draw, but, uh, it's kind of a relief when they aren't because then you can kind of like, I still watch the NBA on Christmas, but I also want to have an opportunity to enjoy my family. So because of some of the COVID stuff, my extended family isn't going to be doing anything, but I will get to see my parents and my sister and, and her family. So um, just looking forward to that. And then because of what's happened the last two years, and I won't make this like a COVID podcast, but I just always appreciate those moments even more, probably, you know, I should have been appreciating them a ton, even during pre pandemic, but I certainly appreciate them more now because of what a lot of other people and families have gone through over the last two years. So I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I appreciate that. I I feel similarly. I think, uh, if anything, these last years of just and not even just from COVID just life in general has been kind of crazy um like going back and looking at where I was a year ago compared to today um in like all areas of my life um I'm just excited to get to do some cool stuff with family and friends uh the ones I'm going to get to be around and um just get to be a person for a little bit because I feel like I've been so wrapped up with work so I'm glad to have a little bit of time off and um get to just enjoy things. Uh, and honestly, I I don't know if I'm going to watch the Christmas day games this year. Uh, partially. I just wish that they were being canceled. That's a whole other podcast, but um, yeah, it, it's a good time to just check out and, and enjoy some time with family and friends. Cause you never know. When's the last time I did not mean to make it uh, depressing, but like just, you know, the, appreciating the time we have is a good thing.
1: Yeah. So th- this wraps up the December monthly podcast. So I'm very hopeful as we look to the new year that the January monthly podcast that we'll get to talk about a lot brighter and perhaps, you know, even different, you know, topics than, than this one that was far more narrative driven.
0: Yeah. Getting to talk about like Chris Duarte's uh, off movement shooting being better in January is what I'm hoping we get to do or something like that, you know, something that's more along our lines of what we like to talk about. But uh, Caitlin, this was a blast as always. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. We appreciate you guys, and thanks for being with us the entirety of this year. We'll we'll be back in January, of course. Um, should probably have another pot out before then. It's just going to depend on how my Christmas schedule looks. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys are, are staying safe, enjoying your time with family and, and and friends, and and however you choose to spend it, whatever you're doing. And I hope you having a great Christmas, great holidays, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening.